100% Wild podcast is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, the nation's number one GPS hunting app. Download today in the Google Play and App Store. Hey kids, welcome back to another episode of the Drury Outdoors 100% Wild podcast. I'm Tim Chelsvik, 50% of the wild. I'm Matt Drury, and I'm 100% of the wild. 50%. <laughs> That's right. Get their money's worth out of this show today. This is going to be a good one. So uh, I, I, you know, I don't want to steal your thunder here, but just, just in no the, thunder, <laughs> just in that. the little bit of the kind of the pre-interview, I'm already all excited <laughs> for this one. So uh, we probably should just kind of get right into it today. Let's do that. We have probably the most notable conservationist we have ever had on the show. Well, and I would argue one of the most influential conservationist in the last 40 years, 30 years, probably maybe mm-hmm. more. Uh, let's go ahead and introduce this guy. Yeah, everyone. Uh, let's say hello to Mr. Rob Keck. Rob, welcome aboard. Hey guys, look, I know, I don't know about all that buildup that you gave, but uh, everybody has to understand that hunting is part of conservation. So I don't know where you fit that into that introduction, but, uh, let me tell you, it's all about hunting and hunters. And, you know, I just, interviewed the uh, head of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and we were talking about that very subject that, uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize what hunters have given to conservation, what they have given to bring back so many different wildlife species, whether it's wild turkeys, whitetails, wood ducks, black bears, Canada geese, pronghorns, you name it, even our nation's symbol, the bald eagle all been funded through the dollars that hunters have given. So Rob, that kind of brings up a question for me because you have, you, you headed up the NWTF for a lot of the years and you have advised presidents and you are, you're a hunter, you're a, a pretty darn accomplished hunter. How do you navigate those political waters as a hunter? Cause I imagine there's probably some, there's some stereotypes people have about those of us that hunt. Well, you know, it's always a challenge. Politically, right now, when you look at all the influence that uh, that politicians have over wildlife management, we're in some pretty precarious times right now in that, you know, when I look at uh, things like in New Jersey, for example, when the governor literally can shut down the bear season, even though we've had great research, great management, bear populations at all-time highs, uh, you know, it, it's it's always a challenge. But when I look over the years and, you know, having had the opportunity to, to visit with presidents when they called upon the conservation community uh, to give input, to provide guidance and leadership, you know, we tried to really couch it in a way that, you know, when we, we talk about, let's say, the restoration of the wild turkey, you know, it's been something that has improved the quality of life of many, many people way beyond just the hunting community. Who doesn't enjoy driving down a country road and seeing a flock of turkeys or then take it even further, herd a deer, flock of geese overhead? It is all something that, you know, we try to couch it in a way that this is something that's good for America, good for our country, good for people that uh, that may never go hunting that may never go fishing, but that without that kind of, uh, uh, of work, without that kind of research and management and leadership, you know, our days wouldn't be as enjoyable as what they are today. And so 
we made many different appeals. Of course, every time it was with a, you know, a different president, Republican and Democrat. And of course, when uh, the Republicans were in office, it was a whole lot easier to talk conservation. Mm-hmm. In fact, when George W. was in office, uh, I was very fortunate when the conservation groups met, let's say, in the Roosevelt Room, I had the right-hand seat of the President of the United States. And with President Bush, I was with him 13 different times, from the ranch to the Rose Garden. And we had a chance to talk one-on-one. i never forget one of the great experiences was down at the ranch in Crawford, Texas. He drove the truck. We talked about conservation. He showed me all the things he was doing out on the land. And I'll tell you, for your listeners that do a lot of habitat work, they've been really proud of George W., one of the work he was doing there. He was running a chainsaw. I mean, (laughs) he got his hands dirty. He knew all about it. And it's interesting because that doesn't fit the narrative that's out there about uh, about those of us that may be a little more conservative minded. It's typically we're just for big business, uh, damn the environment, you know, whatever. And and really, we are the most in tune with the environment and the animals that inhabit it, and and are the most passionate about making sure that the, that they live to see another day. It, it, it's it's passion in a much different sense, right? I, I'm sure there's plenty of, um, of of liberal views that that they love nature, and you know, because you you do mm-hmm. have that side of the the crunchy granola, uh, uh, yeah, as well. But um, we just we just have a much different approach. We we want to conserve them and, and make it a, a better place for our children or children's children, you know, everybody in in, in the country there. But right. we also like to enjoy going out and hunting them. I mean, at the end of the day, legally hunting these animals that we strive so hard to uh, conserve is, mm-hmm. is something that we as hunters really find a lot of enjoyment in. And it's hard to explain that to a non-hunter. Uh, Rob, you know, you, you're currently the director of conservation for Bass Pro Shops. What do you, what, what are you guys doing right now to try to continue and spread that message? Because Bass Pro Shops and Nacabela's, they've always been a dry force and kind of a beacon of, of light and hope for all hunters. So, so are there any initiatives right now that you guys are working on? Absolutely. First of all, conservation is at the core. It's at the core mission of Bass Pro Shops. Johnny Mars understands that if you don't have wildlife that can be hunted, you won't be able to sell any camouflage. You won't be any customer base. If you don't have fish, there'll be nobody there to buy fishing rods. So it is at the forefront. It's a passion of Johnny. It's a passion of our entire team because we know that without it, without good conservation, wise conservation, we're going to be, uh, you know, in terrible shape. And uh, we've got three pillars of conservation. One of them is protecting, enhancing, improving wildlife habitat. Another one is advocacy, and a third one is reaching out and creating those new generations of uh, of hunters and anglers. And so we spend literally millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars through many of the conservation groups that are out there, whether it's NWTF, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Quality Deer Management Association. Uh, there's a variety of those groups that are doing uh, a lot of good work. We fund that through our outdoor fund program. And uh, I can tell you, we're always looking for uh, those important areas, whether it's down in the Florida Everglades to uh, you name it. We're very much involved in, in looking at what's called R3, recruitment, retention, reactivation. 
if we don't take and improve on our numbers of hunters, if we don't take and improve on the numbers of anglers, we're going to become more and more politically irrelevant. Yep. And so Bass Pro Shops takes it to heart. Uh, I, along with our conservation team, Bob Zemer, who's the uh, senior uh, member of that team, he's former director of the Missouri Department of Conservation, does a tremendous job uh, uh, for all of us. And I'm just proud to be part of that team. So that being said, you know, what that, that is a conversation that, that everybody in our world has been having a lot lately, whether it's a manufacturer or the, the, the TV producers are, you know, uh, the big box stores, you know, hunting, hunter numbers in general, you know, you look at the license sales, it just continues to decline and it's not for lack of effort. You know, it's not for lack of programs like what you just mentioned. It's just that we're up against a, a, a lot of different factors that that are making it extremely difficult to get these young kids involved. Uh, from your perspective, what what is the biggest hurdle, and then how, in your opinion, would we overcome it? Well, I think that uh, you know there's a number of ways we can try to skin this cat, but uh, part of the problem that we've got is that uh, we've got a change in our culture. We've got children, they're not growing up with the rural roots that so many of us that uh, grew up hunting, fishing, and trapping had. And so uh, there's a lot of different programs out there, mentoring programs that uh, are in place to, to try to introduce new people, not only young people, but new people into into the hunting and, and outdoor recreational sports. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have got to continue to not only mentor them for the first time, but it's been shown that we have got to find uh, repeated opportunities to uh, give them uh, another chance to hunt in multiple times. And uh, it's it's going to be one of the biggest challenges that we face. You know, these numbers continue to drop and looking at, uh, you know, the next five years, uh, I think we're going to be, you know, very disappointed with where those numbers are heading and whether we can turn them around or not. Uh, you know, we, we become a smaller part of the overall nation's population, which means we're becoming less and less politically relevant. And that's one of the things that just really concern me. Uh, everybody has to do their part in taking out a new person uh, there's a lot, lot of different efforts going on within a lot of these uh, uh, non-governmental organizations, these conservation groups. Uh, there's a big R3 effort that's going on nationally uh, through our state fish and wildlife agencies. But uh, uh, I'm not sure that we have got the complete answer to that, although I'm encouraged because we've also seen a rise in numbers of females that have entered into hunting and into outdoor sports. Uh, the number of uh, people that have begun to shoot, and uh, you know, we look at recreational shooters, that's another area that has a lot of growth potential uh, and is growing. I look at our National Archery in the Schools program. That is another very positive thing that we've seen with you know, literally millions of kids being exposed to, to shooting a bow and arrow and that uh, Maybe 30% of them want to try. They say they want to try hunting. 
And so we got to make sure that those that want to try, that we give them that opportunity. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things, we had a meeting last year with the MDC, and one of the interesting things that they showed us was that the youth programs that they have, once the kids age out of the youth programs, they don't seem to be coming back, meaning whether it's, you know, they're not understanding the hunting and they're just kind of going and it's one day or a weekend with that or a, a mentor. And, you know, it's just kind of, uh, some, you know, some little small adventure they it's get episodic. to do. Yep. Yeah. They don't, they're not being entrenched or, or, or wanting to live that lifestyle and they don't come back to it. And I, I assume some of that has to be from lack of public land or not necessarily public lands. There's plenty of public lands, lack of of knowledge of the sport, maybe, Mm -hmm. or lack of, of how to, um, what, what do you think about that? You know, being, being Bass Pro being there in Missouri. So uh, kind of a correlation there, you probably have met with the same people. Uh, I don't think it's just a Missouri problem. I think that's a state by state problem. They're aging out of the program and we're not seeing them coming back. There's a few states that actually have shown increases in their hunter numbers, but by the vast majority, most of them are seeing decreases. And, uh, you know, it's it's one of the challenges that we're going to continue to face. Uh, Our whole culture has changed, and it's not just in hunting. We've seen it with a lot of outdoor sports, snow skiing, and and others have seen declines in participation. And... uh, Access certainly is one of them. Another issue that we found that is right on top of the list is available time. Uh, a lot of a lot of national meetings, symposiums been held, research been done, and at that top of the list, people are not finding available time to go. And when you look, let's say at a school kid's agenda or his itinerary for a week, and they're involved in soccer and little league baseball or lacrosse or volleyball or whatever. Uh, there's so much of their time is eaten away that, uh, you know, there's, there's not a whole lot of time left, uh, to go hunting. And, uh, I don't know that in this culture change that we've experienced in the electronic world where, you know, many of these kids are finding, you know, their experience, uh, you know, on the screen instead of out in the woods. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things I'm just not sure we're going to solve very easily. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean to be pessimistic because I think there is still some very bright spots in our future, but we're going to have to work a lot harder at it than what we've done in the past. One of the things I, I, I think is going to be important for folks to, to understand, and some states are taking steps towards this, and Rob, you're probably aware of this, some states are enshrining hunting as a right for their citizens, but federally, hunting is considered a privilege. And I think there's just a mental shift when you realize this, the thing that we're so very passionate about, about is not enshrined in the Constitution, therefore it can go away. And so as hunters, we, I think we need, like, if we all understood that, we would probably have a greater sense of urgency around this issue. Like there's nothing saying that we will be hunting for the next couple hundred years. If they treat it like they treat the, you know, 
gun the whole issue around second guns amendment. yeah the second amendment i think people would would definitely you know as soon as somebody starts having that conversation you're like whoa 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 nobody's taking my guns if if that word ever got to that point like hey you know we're thinking about shutting down hunting in this state or that state you know i think people would you know unite behind something like that but you don't want it to ever get to that and there are places in wisconsin that they have these kind of they have these county-based uh conservation boards and PETA is trying to get animal rights activists embedded in these little councils so they can kind of go county by county and make things more difficult. And that those kind of things are possible and people need to like hunters need to understand we don't have a right to hunt. (laughs) Never heard it put that way. I think one thing that's really important, we began to touch on it earlier, but we are terrible at selling our sport to the general public. Yes. We talk to ourselves way too much. We never talk about the positive uh, influence, the positive things that we accomplish through hunting and conservation and wise management. And uh, we've got to be proactive because most times when we end up in national news, we're in a defensive posture. And we've got such a good news story to tell. It's a story that uh, we've got to tell loud and clear. We've got to tell it with excitement. And we got to tell it with the knowledge that what we're doing is good for the land. It's good for wildlife. And, uh, you know, when you get those anti-hunters embedded in these different areas that you're talking about, Tim, they uh, uh, they get the media attention. And certainly the mainstream media is not on our side. No, they're not. Not at all. Well, I, I feel like we could have this conversation I, I, for hours. I just love talking to Rob in general. No I, I, I want to share with you before we move forward, you know, Mark and Terry have spoke so highly of you for literally since I've been a, a, a little boy. I mean, I, I've always heard your name and then through the trade shows, once I started working here, you know, got to, got to meet you and just the stories they have about you and just the passion that you have for, for all things wildlife. It, 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 they just really, really respect you. And I just wanted to share that. And I, I'm, I'm sure you know that, but uh, I don't know that you got two bigger fans than, than Mark and dad. <laughs> well, that uh, it goes both ways. Let me tell you, I've been knowing those guys for a long time. You know, it started back, uh, you know, in the turkey calling contest days when I got to know those two. And, you know, they have done so much, I think, to improve the image of hunters. And, uh, you know, I salute them for what they do and doing it in such a positive way, an ethical way, a classic way. And, uh, Love them to death. <laughs> we appreciate that. I, I know they just have nothing but fun things to, to, to say about Rob and what he's done. And just the stories kind of on some of those turkey hunting circuit days and <laughs> turkey calling days. Only and, imagine. Yeah, the, that's the, I, the glory days for sure. I mean, there was a lot of funny stories came out of those, you know, the early, mid-90s, late-90s. Stuff that you just can't talk about. (laughs) (laughs) So we've taken a lot of Rob's time with our questions. One of our listeners has a question. We kind of have a first on on the show this week in that we have a celebrity voice impersonator. Yeah, this this guy sounds just like Cuz Strickland. I I feel like I heard the question. I was like, is this Cuz? Maybe it's Cuz punking us. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, we should get to it. The question of the day is brought to you by Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's. Your adventure starts here. Hey guys, my name's Bobby Ehrman from uh, Louisiana. I've uh, been turkey hunting many years, but I've had a few years 
where it's kind of down. You can't hear any turkey gobbling. And now I think that, well, the first day was really good. Got two birds, me and a friend of mine. But now it's kind of a lull. It's You're not having many turkey sightings, not hearing much gobbling. I think maybe that the hens might be sitting on the nest. Uh, possibly our season is starting later. Not sure, but uh, if you could give me your input on that. Uh, still haven't given up. I got one more bird to get, and I'll get him, but it's uh, it's uh, showing to be pretty difficult. Cuz just doesn't want to have to ask for advice. I, I love that last part, <laughs> and I'm going to get him. I'm going to get him. Rob, what do you think about turkey numbers nationally? I don't know if you know specifically about Louisiana, but I've heard a lot of people say, and I've experienced it myself, it's been a quiet spring. <clears throat> Missouri's been tough. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when, when old Kim over there in North Korea started sending up those missiles, man, Goblin just decreased. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> the rocket man. <laughs> I know I'm just being funny, but, you know, nobody knows the real answer to that question. You know, gobbling activity has been studied for many, many, many years. And, you know, there's there's many theories on why they gobble, why they don't. You know, I've heard people say, well, they've shot all the goblin turkeys out and that just leaves those that are quiet. Uh, I don't really believe all that stuff. I think that, uh, you know, a turkey gobbles for one reason, and that's to try to attract hens. And when he's got hens, he doesn't have to gobble. And when you're talking about eastern turkeys, which you find there in Louisiana, turkey has been hunted for a long time. I've hunted there along the Atchalaya River Basin a number of times, uh, hunted up around Wilson. And, uh, you know, those turkeys, they, they've been hunted hard over the years, just like over most of the states that have easterns. I think the Easterns are probably some of the hardest to hunt of all the subspecies. And, uh, you know, these turkeys, when you have that presence of hens, depending on where you're at, you know, there's two gobbling peaks generally stated. First, when flock breakup occurs and you've got literally every gobbler in the, in the area that's trying to attract a hen. And then the second peak is when uh, those hens go to incubate on the nest. They're going to lay 11 to 14 eggs. takes 28 days to incubate and to hatch them out. And uh, that's when those big long-spurred gobblers then start to really, really pick up on their gobbling. So depending on you know, where you're at in this whole cycle, will have a big, big uh, bearing on just how much gobbling you hear. Another factor that I found, uh, I don't know what you're – uh, Jake population is, but when you come off of a year where you've had excellent reproduction, when you have big numbers of Jakes, gangs of Jakes that are out there, when those dominant birds set up to gobble, those gangs of Jakes will literally come in and run them off. And so the dominant birds then really reduce the gobbling activity simply because they don't want to be harassed by these mm. gangs of Jakes. So that's another important consideration to, to make in your situation. And uh, I found that true in a number of places this spring. Overall, on the eastern, uh, looking at eastern birds, there's a number of states where those numbers have been down. Uh, they've had a couple of springs that uh, have been very wet. Well, wet springs can be really tough on turkey recruitment. First of all, there's something we call the wet hen effect. When you've got a wet spring, 
predators can easily follow that hen into the nest, kill her, and destroy the uh, the poults or destroy the eggs. Anybody that's ever hunted behind bird dogs knows that uh, when you've got uh, dry conditions, it's hard for that bird dog to scent. Mm-hmm. But when you've got wet or damp conditions, that bird dog can scent a lot easier. And so that's one issue. The other one is if that hen can bring off those poults, when they get to be about two weeks old and she's got 11 to 14 poults, she can't brood them all. She can't get them all under her wings. And so if you get a period of extended rain with dropping temperatures, dropping into the 50s, you can literally lose the entire hatch to hypothermia. Oh, and uh, I know here in the East, we have experienced some of that. We've had some wet springs here back to back to back. And uh, it's hurt some of the recruitment. Now, it's not that way in every place. Every place gets, of course, different rainfall in the East. But overall, a lot of states have been experiencing numbers that are down from what they have experienced just, say, five years ago. Mm-hmm. So do you feel like, you know, at like, for instance, just North Missouri, kind of where dad, uh, you know, dad's camp's been for forever, frankly, even before he owned the farm there near Kirksville, they were hunting turkeys there. And yeah. back in the day, it was just unbelievable. The type of hunting they had there, the bird numbers were fantastic. And then slowly, but surely it just seems like it's, especially where he's at, it's really, really hard to kill a turkey. And to much less give them to gobble or react or do, you know, much of what the caller's problems were, you know, we're we're experiencing. Do you think that, you know, uh, predation has a big part in that or, you know, just like, for instance, like the amount of coons? Because we have a ton of coons, Mm. you know, it seems like on the farm as well. Well, certainly predation can have an impact, but it's not everything. I think, first of all, you need to back up to when those glory days were. I remember what it was like in North Missouri. I remember going there when you could not count the number of turkeys that gobbled. And when you called in a turkey, there was usually a dozen more behind it. Mm. It was unbelievable. But what I've seen across the country, and I think it relates just to that specific situation, North Missouri was one of the last places to be restocked. And you were experiencing, or your dad was experiencing uh, this expansion, and these flocks were still building up. And in every state that I've ever been, and I've been to all of them, I've hunted everyone, I've taken turkeys in everyone, when that carrying capacity reaches its peak and it starts to drop off, it never comes back to where it was. Hmm. Uh, I think it's just Mother Nature's way of when she feels that 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 habitat is filled, she will then begin to do whatever she does, whether it's in reproduction or die-offs or disease Mm -hmm. or what have you, that, uh, you know, those numbers never come back. And I've I've seen then a a real cyclic kind of situation. You're going to get periods that uh, have great reproduction, and then there'll be years where you don't, and it's just like a roller coaster. But to ever go back to those glory days uh, I don't think it'll happen. I saw it in the Carolinas. I've seen it uh, just in in so many places. Here where I'm at in Pennsylvania right now, uh, it was 15 years ago when we were uh, bringing birds to the lower Susquehanna River Valley, a place that biologists said they never lived. Well, they exploded. Well, those numbers peaked out two or three years ago, and now they're on sort of a decline. And uh, 
it's just it's just the way it is. And uh, I don't think it'll ever come back unless there's some kind of hybrid vigor that's infused. Maybe new turkeys brought in, but uh, I just think it it becomes tougher. So in in that instance, do you feel like you know because Missouri used to it used to be a one tag state, I believe, back in the day, right? Not sure. And then. It's it's been two ta- you get two tags there. It's a three week season. Do you think that the conservation departments need to kind of alter their outlook once the carrying capacity kind of hits its peak and it starts going kind of back the other way? Do you feel like those limits might need to be adjusted or kind of leave it as it is? Well, it's always up for conjecture. I really don't think it'll make much difference. I think that uh, you know there's. A lot of hunters out there that just simply are not accomplished. I've I've seen so many of them, and to get one turkey, uh, you know, for many is is like the season's accomplishment. I You're talking I, I don't think it's going to make much difference. <laughs> I I look at a state like Alabama. They've got eastern turkeys. They've had the longest spring season of any state in the country, and they've kept their bag limit at five. And they've been on this roller coaster for years. I mean, there's seasonal ups and downs, and uh, I just think that uh, you know it, it's one where you know the hens aren't being harvested, uh, except in some states where you've got limited fall seasons. But when you look at the number of fall hunters, they have dropped off tremendously. They've now taken up really, literally hunting whitetails with a bow, and uh, you know fall harvests are just literally insignificant in most states. So I don't think changing that bag limit is going to really amount to a whole lot. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, how about we move along to the uh, wildlife word for the week? Yeah, let's do it. So give, give Rob a little background on this. So we want, we want the show to be helpful to hunters. That's kind of at the base level of everything we do here at Drury Outdoors, obviously. And so I was thinking, what can we do within the show to help give hunters a way to express themselves or to understand natural and biological systems better? And it's like, well, let's do a wildlife word. So it's some kind of scientific term or uh, meteorological phenomena, something that helps us understand natural systems. And nine times out of 10, maybe 10 out of 10, I've never heard of the word. And he puts me on the spot and makes me give a description for it. And I usually can't do that either. So it usually becomes somewhat of a comedy mm-hmm. piece because it shows my ignorance, basically. Yeah. And usually, <laughs> usually it devolves into a 12th grade potty humor. <laughs> <laughs> we'll try not to go down to the basement here. Th- this try, time. Just try on this one. The term is sexual dimorphism. Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) So sexual dimorphism is a distinction and difference in size or appearance between the sexes of an animal in addition to differences between the sexual organs themselves. So, so turkeys, for example, are sexually dimorphic. The males look different than the females. Cardinals would be another, you know, the males are bright red. The females are drab brown. Whitetails, the males typically have antlers. The females do not. That's that two shapes is what dimorphism means. I see. <laughs> There's your we ca- I could have took it somewhere. Yeah. I'm trying to keep it clean I kind of didn't let you take it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rob, did you know that? <laughs> I, I Actually, I didn't. Uh, I, I think I heard that back in biology 101, but uh, I've got a great memory, but it only lasts about 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, you know, Rob, you've, you've been doing this a long time. 
you know, I'd love to hear maybe one of your favorite moments or some, something that really stood out to you, a moment that stood out to you because you're a hunter, a conservationist, you know, something through, through your history here that, that really uh, is worth sharing to the audience today. Golly day. And I you've had a lot of them probably. A few, you don't have nearly enough time to, to hear all those, but uh, you know, I think back the times with my dad, the very first time that we hunted on film and uh, it was one that uh, when I started describing to dad what he meant to me, it was hard for me to keep it together. Mm. It was in Texas. We'd kill a lot of turkeys together. But, you know, here was the moment now that he and I were on camera and I was trying to tell him what he meant to me, you know, as a dad, as a mentor, as one that has given me so much. Uh, it was just really, really a, a challenging time. And, and uh, it, it was one that the emotions came so raw and to tell him how much I loved him uh, was just one of those times that uh, was so special. I've got, I've got another one I wanted to share with you. Maybe this is one that uh, your listeners might enjoy. It was filming a show with John Anderson we were down in oh South Florida. That's so cool. And uh, it was right when Seminole Wind, the yeah. song Seminole Wind was number one on the charts. And, of course, John and I, we'd hunted together a number of times. I had him perform at the NWTF conventions. And uh, we had three long beards coming in, and uh, he killed one of those. But right before he killed it, I, look, I just leaned over to him. I said, hey, John, they're just a swinging. <laughs> and, of course, one of his other number ones. And so he took that bird and— Danny San Angelo was beside me. He said, Rob, why don't you kill one of the others? I said, well, Danny, I don't have a gun. He said, well, get John's. I said, okay. I said, John Anderson, give me that gun. Well, he was still so enthralled because I kept, I'd kept on calling. The other two were just right there. Finally, he gave me his gun. I took that one. And what was really cool, we sat down at the base of a cabbage palm. And we had the camera running. And I asked John about what the lyrics of Seminole Wind meant to him. Where did they come from? He cried like a baby. He said, those words were from my daddy. He said, that's what I, he said, I grew up here in South Florida. And he said, my dad taught me so much about the respect for wildlife and what happens in the swamp. And, uh, you know, that one has stuck with me. I was with John Anderson just two weeks ago and we relived that very thing. And, uh, we, we talked about that hunt. We talked about that interview And that's one that just, you know, is etched in my memory on how the words to a song were so passionate, words that meant so much. You know, there's country singers out there that will sing a song that, uh, you know, somebody else wrote. Mm -hmm. John wrote this. These were his words. And uh, I guess that's what added so much meaning to that experience. I I love that's no, I agree. It's and actually I, a favorite on my truck yeah. in the radio. Like. I remember going to Kmart and buying the cassette when I was in like seventh or eighth grade. I, I love that. Honestly, song. like every time I hear it, I often wondered if he wrote that or mm-hmm. if someone else wrote it for him. That that gave me chills, your it's story. Awesome. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. You bet. 
I want to do my John Anderson impersonation so badly. Don't do it. That's, that's <laughs> You'll a, ruin the moment. For respect for the <laughs> man and the song, the, let's not the day, do that. honestly. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's shut this thing down. Yeah. I know we want to talk to uh, talk to Rob on another show here. So yeah. So uh, so thank you for listening, everyone. If you want to subscribe to the show, do so via all the normal podcast places. We're on YouTube. Check out the show on Deercast. There's nowhere that we ain't. That's right. And Rob is a contributor there in Deercast, so you can follow along with more things that he's doing. The types of turkeys he's killing and where he's killing them at. You will never see better turkey hero photography <coughs> That's right. than Rob's hero. <laughs> That's pictures. right. It's worth going into Deercast just to see where Rob's at and what you know what his photos look like. Yeah. He puts the rest totally. of us to shame. No, so I quit. I quit sending them, guys. I felt like, man, I'm I'm going to overload this thing. So. Oh no. <laughs> Or I haven't even begun to send to you. Well, and that was the funny part about it, because you, you mentioned off air, like you were hunting, you know, you're hunting during the winter as well, where it's where the, the seasons are open and you're able to send stuff in before any of the rest of us are really prime. Yeah, you're getting the, the, the pump prime. So it was awesome. I love seeing it, man. And uh, look forward to seeing more from you. And I can't thank you enough for, for participating and helping us. Absolutely. You bet, guys. Anytime. All Thank right. you. Cool. Thanks for joining us today, Rob. See ya. You bet. All right. Until next time. Peace out.